You might note in your order of service that piece is called Dialogue. Of course, it is two voices speaking to each other, not shouting over each other, but listening. How about that? This story begins at the Kansas City Royals baseball stadium in June of 2018. The General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association was in Kansas City that year, and a bunch of ministers often go out to a baseball game during General Assembly. It's a lot of fun. I sat with my friend, the Reverend Christiana Willie McKnight, the minister of our congregation in Taunton, Massachusetts. Christiana had a problem. But to explain this problem and to explain this story, I have to back up and show you, of all things, an organizational chart. I am very exciting. <laughs> okay, here we go. This story begins at, uh, I did that. The, the Unitarian Universalist Association was created in 1961. It is the consolidation of the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church in America, two separate bodies that came together in 1961. It is an association of congregations. There are about 1,100 member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, or the UUA. The association, the UUA, provides resources and advice, and it does national public witness. It trains and certifies religious professionals and lay leaders, but they cannot tell a congregation what to do. They can give advice, but the congregations are self-governing. They make their own choices, they own their own property, they hire the people they want to hire. Congregations have their freedom. The American Unitarian Association was always an association of congregations as well. There was, way back in the beginning of the 19th century, a separate organization for ministers. The Ministers Association is distinct and different than the Congregations Association. And so it still is, two separate bodies. The UUA has about 100 staff members. The UUMA has four, right? So they're not the same size, um, but they are separate organizations. Over the years, the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association, the UUMA, which is not the UUA, you get that clearly, has sometimes been a kind of union, uh, sometimes it's been a networking group for ministers, and sometimes it's been devoted to the professionalism and vitality of our ministry and committed to that work. Early on, centuries ago, and definitely after the consolidation in 1961, and updated on a regular basis, the Ministers Association set rules for its members how ministers are supposed to treat each other, and how we are supposed to act in the world. Our rules for ourselves have some overlap with 1 Timothy. Be of upstanding character. Don't be a lover of money. Don't be violent. Those are good rules. We share those rules. Keep your children submissive. Thankfully, did not make our rules, because I would be right out. <laughs> if you know my older kid, you know that she has not submitted once in her entire life. Raised her as a Unitarian, after all. She is a free thinker, and I would not have it any other way. The Unitarian Universalist Association, the group of congregations, 
in order to certify ministers as prepared to serve a congregation or to work as a chaplain in a hospital or a nursing home or a prison or something like that, they have a group called the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, or the MFC. These are the only three acronyms you need to learn today, UUA, UMA, MFC. The MFC decides if you are in fellowship. Now, remember, congregations are independent. They can ordain anyone they like, and they can call anyone they like as their minister, whether or not that person is in fellowship. But ministers are not so independent. If you break the rules, the MFC can remove you from fellowship. They can suspend your access to the search system, which congregations are not required to use when they're looking for a new minister, but they all do. They can place you on probation, et cetera, et cetera. The MFC has teeth. But the MFC is designed to protect congregations from people who should not be ministers. It is not designed to handle more subtle violations of our expectations of each other. It is not designed to handle misunderstandings. It is not designed to heal wounded hearts or to promote growth and change. It is designed to bar the gates to evil and incompetence. It is good at that, actually. It's quite good at that. But it, it's not their job to heal wounded hearts. So it is the job of the minister's association itself to promote healthy behavior amongst us and to respond to the more subtle violations of our expectations of conduct. When colleagues mistreat each other, but it's not misconduct per se, the minister's association, the UMA, should respond. And we have a process for this, a set of rules, and then a way that those rules are enforced, something called the accountability process, which tells a minister how to respond when another minister has violated our expectations. And this brings us back to the baseball game and my friend, Christana. Christana is a member of the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association Board, the Ministers Association, the UMA. She is the board liaison to a committee which had been appointed about a year prior, so now more than two years ago, to affix the accountability process. Because here's the thing, our process doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. Sometimes even it causes more harm it is a process that is totally broken, that has in it fatal assumptions about power and intention and identity, so it needs to be fixed. Throw it out and rewrite it. That was the task given to this committee. Throw it out and rewrite it. Uh, this is, so this is the part of the process we're working on here, the accountability process. Christana explains this to me, and she knows that I agree with her and the board that it needs to be rewritten because I have seen amongst my colleagues, how the process fails. And here comes the ask. Matthew, we need you. <laughs> there are great people on the team. They've been working at it for a year and a half. Folks who know about trauma and healing. Folks who are experts on restorative justice. People who have good experience with the current process and they know exactly why the current process isn't working 
good people on this committee, great people on the committee, but not one of them knows how to write a bylaw. And this process is in our bylaws. I mean, they can write a bylaw if they need to, but none of them love it. Not like you do. <laughs> Christiana and I understand that justice is written in words, that clarity of language can lead to clarity of process, which can make the world better. Christiana knows that I know this and that I care about this and that I have a unique and perverse skill. <laughs> I know how to express theories into language and even into bylaws. So I tell her, yes, I will be the secretary, more or less, the clerk of the committee. I will not be the chair of the committee, but I will do the writing. And I also promise that I will use my considerable social privilege and relational power amongst our ministers to try to get it passed. So I've been working on this for the last uh, year and a bit. We released a draft in June. We're getting feedback this year. And spirit of life willing, it will be passed next June at our annual meeting. Spirit of life willing, because there is quite a bit of controversy about what I wrote. Rules are well and good. Oh, yes, we should have rules. But what really matters is if you can enforce them and if you can enforce them fairly. What matters is accountability. I saw somebody with this t-shirt the other week. It said accountability on the back of their like jersey. I'm like, I need to take a picture of your shirt. Where did this come from? One of their company's core values was accountability, and so some of them got to wear jerseys with the shirt accountability. I want this for my committee. I want the shirts to say accountability. <laughs> because you need it. What good is a rule? against treating your colleagues with disdain if you can't enforce it. It is another kind of violation to have rules against sexism and racism and bullying and so forth and then not enforce them. It is what is called gaslighting or bait and switch. Oh, you're not allowed to bully your junior colleague or to sexually harass another minister at a conference you're both at, et cetera, et cetera. You're not allowed to do those things. But if you do, we have no effective way to hold you to account, at least not if you have power in the system or you know how the system really works. Do you see what happens? When the rules, the rules are okay. The rules need a little tweaking, but they're mostly fine. But when the system of enforcing the rules is not fairly applied, the people with power, or those who know how to avoid accountability, they get away with it. But people who don't have power in the system, they do get called to account for the rules. Sometimes, in fact, the rules are overly enforced on those without power in the system and under-enforced on those with power in the system. Right? Do you see how that works? How many prescription drugs are being abused up and down Spring Creek or in Roscoe? Police don't do drug raids on suburban streets in Roscoe, do they? Right? The rules are the same, but they're not enforced equally. So I've been working on this a lot. And there are two big themes in the work that I want to lift up to talk to you about this morning, things that I think that are relevant for all of us. First, one of the biggest changes we are making is to notice and name the power of subtle emotional abuse. 
whether it's one minister to another or a minister to a member of their congregation or a staff member or a member of the congregation to the minister. We are naming that emotional bullying and gaslighting, words subtly designed to hurt, belittle, and dominate have power and they're hurtful and they're not okay. You know the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones but words can never hurt me? That's BS. It's wrong, it's not true, and it's dangerous and hurtful to say that it is. Words can hurt. Words and emotional abuse, it's wrong. Research into trauma has discovered that the difference between people who can usually bounce back from a violent or frightening event and those who are, get stuck there, who get PTSD or complex PTSD, the difference is whether their experience and pain is recognized, whether they're seen and affirmed as a person, or whether they're told, oh, you're making it up. It's not really that bad. That's the difference. So an abuser's first job is to convince their victim that they're not really experiencing what they're experiencing. They're being too sensitive. That they, the victim, they're the ones overreacting. So if you're new to ministry and you're a young woman, say, and someone who's been at this ministry thing for a long time, an older man who people respect and admire, has a big reputation, you read his book when you were in seminary, and he tells you you're wrong, you're overreacting, you wonder, am I overreacting? It happens again and again and again. Am I overreacting? So I want to say to all of you, because this isn't just what happens in ministry, right, among ministers, that words are real, and emotional abuse is real, and it's not okay for people to belittle you or to deny that you experience what you experience. It's not okay. And you don't have to put up with it, and you shouldn't. Now, I must tell you that this part of our proposal that names that and says that clearly is a source of some concern among some of our ministers. They worry that our new rules weaponize harm. That if someone says, I've been harmed, well, then that's that. Is there due process? Is there room for grace? These are not conversations that we're just having. These are conversations going on in the wider world, right? I have two thoughts about this concern. The first is this. We have erred on the side of not believing harm, especially from people who are not cisgendered men and from people who are not white, for so many centuries that if we err on the other side for a little while, then that's just the way it is. Deal with it. Not super sympathetic to the claim. But the second thing I say is this. Our new rules are not about punishment. They are explicitly about reconciliation, healing and repair, as well as about public safety. This is the second of the two major themes that I want to name this morning, this move to restorative justice. Now, some ministers have committed acts which make it clear they are unfit for the role, authority, and power that comes with being one of us. They're done. That doesn't mean they're cast off as a person, but it does mean they don't get to be a minister anymore or in the first place. It's not for everyone. 
not everyone gets to be a teacher or a doctor or a therapist or a cop, at least they shouldn't, because you're, upon your ability to do those jobs ethically depends the lives and well-being of others. You're entrusted with a level of authority. You have to keep that trust. And in those kinds of cases, those egregious misconduct, our proposal sends those ministers to that ministerial fellowship committee or a body that is like it to investigate and adjudicate and decide what to do. That's what they're for. But most of the time, we're not talking about these cases. We're talking about the more normal mistakes and errors, assumptions run amok, people in pain seeking power over others, hurt people hurting others, a failure to keep up with changing norms, and so forth. We're talking about people who we expect more of, and people who should be trying to get better at what they do. Isn't that all of us? And Do you ever feel like our expectations for our fellow humans are sometimes getting a little too low? Yeah? How low can the bar go, I wonder sometimes? Or, or the flip side of that is that sometimes too many of us are defensive about where we are instead of being open to continued growth and willingness to learn. You know, you know what it's called when you stop growing and changing at all? You know what that's called? Dead. <laughs> so keep growing and changing. So we, we, don't want, we don't want people to stop. We want people to be in a learning posture. We want to heal the harm, repair the breach, and when possible, restore the relationship. So our new process is focused, whenever possible, to heal harm. The example that Hope Johnson gave is very common. And we did a bunch of listening sessions about the harm people had experienced and their experiences of the current rules. So I could tell you hundreds of other stories of microaggressions and just plain aggressions, misunderstandings layered on top of differences of identity and power, which exacerbate those misunderstandings. And Hope, she was friends with this person. There was no power difference between them. And so she was able to speak to them directly and heal the harm. That's ideal. That's good. That is rare. That's rare. Because most of us, we just let it go, right? Especially if there's a power difference. If you're the junior colleague and there's a senior colleague, or if they're well-respected and you're not well-known, you don't say anything unless it gets real bad or you just withdraw from the situation. Sound familiar? Ministers should be better at this stuff, and sometimes we are, but often we're not. We think we're better at it than we are, and so we don't practice the skills to do it as well as we should. So what if there was someone you could go to, and this is part of our proposal, and say, hey, was what I was experiencing a problem or not? Someone who is trained in trauma and anti-oppression and systems theory and so forth. Someone kind of like Mama Bear in the story could set down the rule, tell you to stop fighting and you had to obey, and then give folks a hug and remind you who you are deep down. Remind you who you are. And then this person could talk you through it. Maybe it's a misunderstanding and we just need to sit down and have a conversation. Maybe they need to learn something, 
And we can re recommend a class or a book or something they should study to do better. Maybe they need a coach to help them with their anger or their stress. Maybe they need to deal with their addiction or something else to heal what they're doing. Let's figure out how we can make it so that they do better. And then also, what about you? You who have been harmed, what do you need to feel better? Do you need an apology? Often that is all people are asking for, is to be seen. Do you need a massage? Do you need a vacation? Sometimes people just need to take a little time to heal their body. We experience pain and trauma in our body, not just in our minds. And sometimes that's what you need. You need a peer support group so you don't feel so alone. How can we help you to, to heal the trauma? Because our goal is not to punish wrong, but to heal souls and heal relationships when we can. We can't always do it, but when we can. How different would our system of justice, would our schools and our city and our world be if we made healed souls and healed relationships the goal? Now, the problem is what happens when the party who did the harm doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to talk, doesn't want to engage, if Hope's friend refused to sit down with her and have that conversation and kept doing those kinds of assumptions over and over again and refused to have the conversation. Well, that's a big problem. It's a big problem in our current rules because our current rules have no remedy for this at all. So, for example, one of our ministers recently did something that hurt a lot of other ministers. He self-published a book that was full of racism and transphobia and inaccurate stories about his colleagues, stories he'd heard and he didn't tell them truthfully. And he distributed this book for free at the national annual meeting in June. He handed it out to people. And when the powers that be in charge of the conference said this was hurtful and we need to restore our covenant with each other, which means we need to sit down and talk, you need to listen to what has been experienced by people, we need a process for healing and actions for you to do better and repair this harm, he said, no, you can't make me. And he's, he's right. Under our current rules, we can't make him. That's not okay with me. We're a free church and a free pulpit, and I value that freedom so very much. It's one of the distinctive things about us is our commitment to freedom. I don't want anyone to tell me or you what to believe or how to live out our values and our lives. We are free, but we are also a covenantal faith. We talk about the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, which means our search for truth must also be responsible, not just free. Our living must be guided by love, and that means I don't get to be immune from the consequences of my words and actions. Immunity from the consequences or from having to have a conversation with a person that you've said something about, that's not freedom. That's oppression. So our proposal says that if you're willing to engage in a process of healing, then we do that. But if you refuse, then that itself is a violation of our obligation and responsibility as ministers, and it might mean that you are removed from ministry. That's the big stick. But you know what? I and most of my colleagues, we are done looking the other way. 
with letting bullies do their thing and just saying, oh, that's just the way he is. He's always been like that. Nothing we can do. Familiar to some of you? If you want to be one of us, then you have to be one of us. If you want to be in the covenant, then you have to abide by the covenant. Freedom without responsibility is oppression. Ethics without accountability is destructive. Covenant without boundaries is meaningless. This work has taken a fair bit of my time and a fair bit of my emotional energy and a fair bit of your time this morning. There's a few more minutes if you'll stick with me. Every time, every single time that a colleague with a more marginalized identity than I have, which is almost all of my colleagues, I have all the privilege to stack up the column, a colleague of color, a woman, a trans colleague, or all of the above, every single time one of them thanks me for leveraging my power amongst us for the sake of our common healing, I want to convey that thanks to you, the members of this church. I do it for my colleagues, for our, our faith, and for you. Because of both the greatness and the harm that this church has experienced over the decades from colleagues who kept the rules and those who did not. For those that loved you well and faithfully and in response to those that hurt you and used you for their own ends. So I do this in part for you. For our congregations, all of them which I love, and for our ministry, which is my home, and for my colleagues who are my family. I will see this process through. And I want you to know how much it matters to me and to so many of the people who do what I do that you have released and encouraged me to do this work. The world we wish to seek, the land of freedom, the land of justice, the land that we seek, is built by our courageous choice, by our covenantal commitments, by the new prophetic voices, calling us to witness, to healing, to hope, to repair. Because there is more love. We're not there yet. And we must keep on until we find it. I invite you to rise in body or in spirit. We'll sing together.